This episode of Full Armor Radio is brought to you by CR101 Radio Network. CR101 Radio Network is a Christian reconstruction internet radio station that hosts and broadcasts lectures, sermons, and podcasts 24-7. We're also brought to you by GCS Apprenticeship Program, which is dedicated to training the next generation of Christian teachers so they can own and operate successful and profitable Christian schools. You can learn more at cr101radio.com and gcsapprenticeship.com. And now to the show. I'm your host, John O'Rourke. Today I'll be continuing talking about apologetic issues. And today I'm going to do a, a comparison between, um, briefly, between the transcendental argument, um, which is the presuppositionalist argument, this is what I am in favor of, and an evidentialist argument um, called a cosmological argument, a very popular form of argumentation that's traditionally used by evidentialists in the past and, and, and today. And um, I want to go through and kind of show what the cosmological argument is and what the problems are with it. So I guess we'll just go ahead and get straight into it. So I'm going to pull up here um, um, this document that I have. This is part of um, a lecture outline that I give for a, my apologetics class. But evidentialism, this, is, this isn't a section of, of apologetic methods that I reject. Evidentialism as a category... Um, is, is very different than presuppositionalism. And to boil it down, to make it real quick in a nutshell, the difference is this. Evidentialism challenges the unbeliever to use his autonomous reasoning in order to try to prove the existence of God. And the issue with that is that um, the, unbeliever, or the evidentialist is assuming that the unbeliever... Um, that that in in the unbelief that the worldview debates that there's there's a place of neutrality, where the unbeliever um, is able to make right use of his reason reasoning, and that the unbeliever's worldview um, can actually account for reasoning itself, that the unbelieving worldview um, has a right to the laws of logic. It's just something that we all can assume, and that man's reasoning is really the highest standard. That is, in effect, what's going on here. So, in other words, the evidentialist is saying, the unbeliever, with a right use of his reasoning, can, at the end of his reasoning chain, can come to the conclusion that God exists. Okay? And that human reasoning is autonomous. You don't need to presuppose the Christian worldview in order to account for human reasoning. Um, in other words, to say, it, to say it, I think, as it is, that human reasoning is the ultimate authority when it comes to apologetics and not Jesus Christ. Because they, the evidentialist oftentimes will say, well, you can't use the Bible in your argumentation. Right? You have to be neutral. So we have, to, we have to meet each other on this neutral ground where we both use our reasoning, and you try to point the unbeliever to say, if you, if you use your reasoning correctly... At the end of your reasoning chain, you'll come to the conclusion that God exists. Now, the presuppositionalist, on the other hand, is actually quite the reverse of that. What we're saying is, unless you start with God, with the Christian worldview, as your presupposition, 
you can't not you cannot make sense of anything at all. Or in other words, unless you start with God as your presupposition, you can't make sense out of reasoning. You can't make any part of your experience as a human being intelligible. Because in an unbelieving worldview, you cannot make sense of the preconditions of intelligibility, those things which are necessary in order for our experiences to be understandable. Um, I did a video on this recently, how the Bible accounts for why knowledge is possible, um, and it's on the preconditions of intelligibility in Scripture. It'd be worth checking out to get further information on that. So the evidentialist is saying, use your autonomous reasoning, and if you do it right, you get to God. We're saying you must start with God or else you can't reason at all. Your worldview can't make sense out of reasoning because it can't make sense out of laws of logic. All right, or uniformity in nature or ethics or the reliability of your sense, your sense perception, your senses, or the reliability of your memory. And any other precondition of intelligibility you want to bring up. So, um, that's kind of an, an overview here. The evidentialist says the unbeliever can use his autonomous reasoning, that is, his reasoning that does, does not at all have to depend upon the Christian worldview, and he can come to the right conclusion that God exists. Um, the thing is, is what the presuppositionist is saying, is that you don't really have autonomous reasoning. Um, the only reason you can re the only reason you can reason is because you're living in God's world and He has created you with the ability. But because you deny God, your worldview cannot make sense of why you can reason. I know the unbeliever can reason, but he can't make sense of why he can reason. Um, the only reason the unbeliever can reason is because he's living in the Christian God's world and is made in the Christian God's image. He's made in God's image. So. That is the issue. The trouble with evidentialist uh, arguments is that they are meant to be argued from this neutral worldview position. The person making this argument, the evidentialist argument, is not supposed to be presupposing the Christian worldview when, when arguing. But a presuppositionalist is saying, as a Christian, you must presuppose the Christian worldview. Um, and if you don't, you become a fool like the unbeliever. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Um, 1 Corinthians 1 says that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Um, so instead of throwing out all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Christ, Colossians 2 says, instead of throwing off those treasures, we hold on to them and, tell, and show the foolishness of unbelief to the world. Now, another problem with these evidentialist arguments when you look at the cosmological today is that they could be made, these cosmo, the evidentialist arguments here could be made by any theist not just a Christian theist. See, they don't just argue for the Christian God. They argue for some, some sort of generic, nondescript deity. Okay? And I have a problem with that as well. So, anyway, let's get into what the cosmological argument is, and then, then we'll go into the critiques. Let's not get ahead of myself. So, what is the cosmological argument? Well, in a nutshell, it's, it's saying that God is the first cause. That would be a way to, get, to characterize this. God is the first cause. Um, this argument focuses on causation as evidence for God's existence. Now, I will say before I get into this, you really can't say the cosmological argument. You really should say a cosmological argument because there are dozens of different formulations of cosmological arguments that all center around this theme of causation. 
So I'm going to give you some common formulations of the cosmological argument, but there are many more. There's no way I could cover them all. Um, it'd take a really long time. There's, there's so many and have to do a lot of research on how many dozens there are and get them all formulated and everything. So we'll look at some of the common ones. So the, the, a, a cosmological argument may go, may kind of have this when it focuses on cause and effect. You might have this as an example. Say we observe tree Z. And we see that tree Z is growing and we say, well, that tree Z was caused by the seed that came from tree Y. And tree Y came from the seed from tree X. And so on and so forth, all the way back to the first tree, tree A. But then we say, well, what caused tree A in the first place? What was the cause of tree A, the first tree? Ultimately, the cosmological argument would say, a cosmological argument would say, the first cause of everything, including trees, is God. That the first cause, you go all the way back and say, boom, there must be a first cause, and that first cause is God. It's based, this argument's based upon our experience of these like secondary causes where that the causes we experience are caused by other things, therefore there must be a first cause, which we call God, that put every other cause into motion. Here it is in a, a simplistic yet common formulation. So somebody may say this, every event or object has a cause. What caused this event itself had a cause. There's a, there's a cause and effect chain for all causes. Therefore, there must be a cause at the very beginning of the chain of causes. That first cause is what we call God. You see, so we go, we observe and we say, we well, you know what, everything that happens in our lives, every event and every object that there is, was caused by something else. And even that thing that caused it was also caused by some other cause. And that was caused by another cause. And that was caused by another cause. All the way back. And so you get all the way back to the beginning and boom, there must be a first cause. And that first cause is what we call God. Okay, so that's, the, that's a cosmological argument in a nutshell. Let's, let's, uh, let's criticize it. Okay. The first premise is based upon an observation that things that we observe in the universe have a cause. So the first premise, again, was every event or object has a cause. This is based upon an observation that things we observe in the universe have a cause, right? That's what it's based upon. People look around and say, well, look, everything has, every event or object has a cause. So that's how they get that belief. But when we bring this to the unbeliever, we have already assumed that human reasoning concerning observations is intelligible in and of itself. So the problem with that is that from a presuppositionalist standpoint, um, we're saying the unbeliever in his worldview cannot make sense of observations. Um, he, can't, he cannot tell us why his senses are generally reliable or why nature will be uniform in the future. They will function in a law-like fashion in the future the way it has in the past nor can he make sense of the laws of logic that he uses to reason through his observations. So this already assumes this evidentialist issue that the unbeliever has this autonomous reasoning that he can use and doesn't have to presuppose God. No, from a presuppositional standpoint, we're saying you don't, the unbelieving worldviews don't have a right in their worldview to stake their claim on uniformity of nature, laws of logic, reliability of their senses, because their worldview can't make sense of that. Only the Christian worldview can. So the evidentialist has already given up a lot of ground here that he shouldn't give up to the unbeliever. 
Um, uh, reasoning concerning observations is not intelligible in and of itself from an unbelieving worldview. It must be understood through a Christian worldview. That's the only way you can properly and rationally interpret data in the world, including, including the observation of cause and effect. So it assumes that the unbeliever has the right to use his human experience and reasoning as they are without presupposing the existence of God. But in fact, he doesn't have that because his worldview cannot make sense of reasoning, um, the reliability of our senses or, or any of those things. So that's number one, uh, it's a problem um, with the presuppositions there. Two, the first premise is self-refuting. Remember, the first premise is every event or object has a cause. Now, if you're a Christian making that, or this argument and this formulation, <clears throat> you know what the unbeliever is going to say, right? <coughs> then what caused God? If every event or object has a cause, what caused God? You know, right? Pretty common <coughs> um, rebuttal there. The Christian does not believe that God has a cause. They believe that God is eternal. So therefore, they don't actually believe that every event or object has a cause, do they? They say, well, except God. Well, then not every event or object has a cause. So Christians who use this argument, if they're honest, have to say, okay, we'll adjust it then. We can't say every event or object. We have to say every created event or object has a cause. What caused this event or object itself had a cause. There's a cause and effect chain. Therefore, there must be a cause at the very beginning of the chain of causes. That first cause is what we call God. So there we go. Fixed it. Well, wait a second. What unbeliever is going to accept that first premise? Every created event or object has a cause. Saying that everything that is created has a cause begs the question because it assumes that there is a creator. You've already assumed the thing you're supposed to be proving. You're supposed to be proving that there's a creator, and you say in your first premise that things are created. Well, that implies a creator, doesn't it? So you beg the question, which is fallacious. You can't do that. It's the very thing you're supposed to be proving. So you have to adjust your argument again, and you might say this. The Christian should, may, may adjust it and say, every natural event or object has a cause. What caused this event or object itself had a cause. Therefore, there must be a cause at the very beginning of the chain of causes. That first cause is what we call God. Okay. So now we're dealing with this argument a little bit more honestly formulated. We're saying, well, every natural event, because we're, remember, we're talking about what we observe. We go around and say, well, I see that this dog was caused by those dogs, and that tree was caused by that tree, etc., etc. So our observations of the natural world, we say, look, there's a cause and effect relationship. Okay. So, next criticism, even from an observational standpoint, do we know by our observation? that every natural event or object has a cause. Do you know from observation that every natural event or object has a cause? Have you experienced every natural event and object at all times? You haven't, right? We cannot learn that every natural event or object has a cause by our observations alone. It's, a, it's, it's making a claim to knowledge that we just don't have. The only way we can know that every natural event and object has a cause is by divine revelation in God's Word in the Bible. So, in fact, the Christian does know that natural events have uh, a cause 
But he doesn't know that from observation alone. In fact, it comes back to, to God's word. So, but the evidentialist will not use God's word as a starting point. That's, that's one of the big differences between a presuppositionalist and an evidentialist. The evidentialist will not do apologetics while um, having God's word as the starting foundation. He thinks that, he thinks that that is um, wrong logically. It's not, but he, does, he thinks it's wrong logically. Next, next critique. A cosmological argument does not prove that there is one first cause. Okay, based on this argument, it does not prove that there is one first cause, but based upon this argument, there could conceivably be many first causes, which would mean many gods in this case. It assumes that each and every object that we see has a cause. Okay? Now let's just grant, even though we don't know that from observation, let's just grant that that's the case. Every event or object has a cause. Every, each and every event we see. And then it assumes that all events, collectively, all events and objects together in the universe are caused by one first cause. But that doesn't follow from the cosmological argument here. The Greg Bonson said this, criticizing the cosmological argument. He said, if you reason that there is a cause for each event, and from this conclude that there is a cause for all events, then you're engaging in an error of quantification. Why does it not prove many first causes? So in other words, if you saw, if you were going to say, well, what, what caused dogs? We see that this dog was caused by those dogs, and those dogs were caused by those dogs, etc., etc. What caused dogs? Well, maybe you have a first cause of dogs. And then you look at trees, and you go backwards, you know, cause and effect chain for trees, and you have a first cause for trees, and a first cause for humans, and a first cause for fish and a first cause for sharks, and a first cause for birds. You have as many, as many objects and events there are, you could conceivably, based upon this argument, have as many first causes as there are effects in the world. Now, is that what the Christian wants to argue, that there are many first causes? Well, no, he wants to argue that there's one first cause. So, um, the argument itself doesn't really prove one first cause, and you certainly don't want to go a route that proves that's trying to prove many first causes. And that's not what you're going for, is it? Um, it doesn't prove um, a singular first cause, God. Um, it, it could conceivably prove many gods. The unbeliever could assert that the natural causes in our sorry. The next criticism: the unbeliever could assert that the natural causes in our experiences are caused going backward in an infinite regress. They may ask the question, why must the chain of causation stop? Could it not continue on infinitely? So in other words, they say, okay, yeah, we see things have cause and effect here and now, and that goes backwards. Instead of stopping at some point with a first cause, it just continues on forever. It goes backwards and backwards and backwards and backwards, all the way forever, eternally backwards. Okay, now if you're not going to start with God's revelation in Scripture um, about how he created and did cause things and did the world, the universe did start, um, ultimately you're going to have a, a battle of, um, of origins that, that you really can't resolve. Um, it's going to be a matter of interpreting evidences differently. The Christian creationist will interpret things as created while the non-believer will interpret them as uncreated. And you go back and forth forever um, because the unbeliever is going to see things through his worldview lens, the believer will see things through his. And, you, and 
as I've argued before, you cannot argue merely on the on the on based upon data or evidences because that those data pieces of data are interpreted through a worldview. So in this case, the unbeliever will say, "Okay, I see cause and effect in the world. I agree with you. I interpret that as something that goes on all the way back forever." And therefore, they're basically saying the universe does not have a cause because it never began. It's infinitely or it goes back eternally. Okay, so that would be another thing that would be um, a, a, that is a challenge to this argument, as the cosmological argument here, as it stands by itself. Um, you're not going to be able to resolve the debate with this. Um, that's the advantage of presuppositionalism: is that presuppositionalism keeps the whole uh, Christian worldview intact the entire time. And it's a package deal. You're not just proving the existence of God, but you're proving the existence of, or the truth of the entire Christian worldview, including the doctrine of creation. Next issue, next criticism of cosmological argument. It commits the fallacy of composition, um, which, is called, which is a fallacy of the part to the whole. Um, the fallacy goes, the parts of a thing have a property, therefore the whole of the thing has the property as well. Um, a pretty obvious example would be something like this. Somebody said, every brick in the building weighs less than the pound, therefore the whole building weighs less than the pound. See, the property of a single brick is it's less than the pound, so the whole thing, all those bricks together, also is less than the pound. Well, the property of weight being less than the pound does not transfer from the part to the whole. Because the more bricks you add, now you have more than a pound. Um, it, you add, you're adding weight. The, uh, the property of weight does not transfer from the part to the whole. Um, you, don't keep, you don't maintain that less than a pound weight when you keep adding bricks together to make a whole building. So what do we have here with the, cos with the cosmological argument? So when we talk about parts, we say, well, every part of our experience, we observe this cause and effect relationship. So they're saying, so therefore, the whole... You know, every part of the universe has a cause, therefore the whole universe has a cause. But see, what this does is that it doesn't prove that all events or objects that exist necessarily share that same causal relationship like the individual parts do. So you can see, well, I can see that my dog was caused by those two other dogs. Okay, yeah, you can observe that. We can see biology and, and reproduction of dogs and stuff. Does that prove, though, and you see that with other things too, trees and everything else in our experience, does that prove that the whole universe functions and that, has that same property of cause and effect? See, it arbitrarily assumes that the quality of causation is true of the parts and the whole. We may be able to say it's true of the parts, um, but at least from what we observe individually, again, we, we may not be able to, we, should, we are not able to say by observation alone that every natural event or object has a cause, but we can't, we're just arbitrarily assuming that the property of causation applies to the whole universe as a whole, even though we just observe it about the parts. So you can't, since, since, we, don't, since we did not and do not observe the entire universe um, being caused, it's arbitrary for us to assume that since what's true, the, since the, the parts of the universe have a cause and effect relationship, then so does the whole thing. That, that's an unreliable conclusion. It's the fallacy of composition. Okay? And then next um, criticism, 
a cosmological argument is fallacious, and this is probably one of the most important things to remember. A cosmological argument is fallacious because it argues from observations of the natural world to a conclusion that has nothing to do with the natural world. It argues from the natural to the supernatural. Simply put, the natural world's part, this is, this is how the cosmological argument's arguing, and here's why it's bad. The natural world's parts have causes that are natural, therefore the whole natural world collectively has a supernatural cause, God. Bonson said this, the argument is based on evidence taken from my experience of the natural world, but my conclusion has nothing to do with my experience of the natural world. See the point? We say, well, look, trees cause trees, which cause trees, which cause trees. Dogs cause dogs, which cause dogs. Natural, these are things in the natural world. We see cause and effect relationship. You know, um, I take the stick, I swing the stick with my hand, I hit the ball, the ball moves. Look, they see the cause and effect relationship in the natural world. They go all the way back to the beginning, going back from tree Z to tree Y to tree X, all the way back. And we say, okay, what caused the first tree? Some supernatural cause. So wait a second. We're observing natural causes in our observation, and all of a sudden we just leap, we take this giant leap to a supernatural cause? Why not a natural cause to these natural parts of the world? Why not a natural cause? We're observing things in the natural world. How can we conclude from that that there's a supernatural cause? We could go back and say, the unbeliever could say, okay, all this proves is that there was a natural first cause. Right? You so say, look at the, every natural event in the world has a cause, and you go backwards far enough, you come to a first cause. And that first cause would also be natural. But God's not natural, is he? He's supernatural. So from a Christian worldview, is this what you want to argue for? That God is a natural first cause? No, that's not what Christians believe. So you haven't proven the existence of a God at all. Not a supernatural God. You've all you've demonstrated, even all the other issues notwithstanding, all you've demonstrated is that there is a natural first cause. I'm not. I don't think you've even done that necessarily. But even if the other things were, uh, even if the other issues weren't there, you still haven't proven a supernatural God based upon this argument alone. See these issues? This is really, really important because this is a very common argument, but. As Christians, we want to do better um, than this, I think. We need to come back to a transcendental, you know, presuppositional argument, which, you know, I've talked about many times in the past. Here's a, um, a variation of the cosmological argument called the Kalam cosmological argument that's pretty popular. It says that everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause, and that cause is God. The problem here, premise two, which is the universe began to exist, is arbitrary. Did you observe the universe beginning to exist? No. How do you know the universe began to exist? You didn't observe it. Here, it's merely arbitrarily assumed. Well, the universe began to exist. Well, someone could argue that the universe is eternal, and therefore does not have a cause. Notice as well, this does not prove a Christian God. Um, and it also argues from the natural to the supernatural. Because so they say everything that begins to exist has a cause. Okay, that's based upon observation. I see that this dog began to exist. Well, why? Because of the parent dog, etc. This tree began because of the seed. Okay, 
and say, well, the universe began to exist. You didn't observe that. You may observe trees, you know, starting and growing and dogs being born and things like that and a ball moving because the stick hit it and then the stick hit it because I swung the stick. You may observe those things, but you don't observe the universe beginning, right? So it's just arbitrarily assumed here and again, it has the same types of issues that argues from the natural to the supernatural. You can't just assume um, that there's a supernatural cause when your base and your premises are observations of natural causes. So those are the issues there. But from a presuppositional standpoint, what do we do? The issue is this. The unbeliever cannot make sense out of any part of his experience upon the grounds of his own worldview. If somebody does not presuppose the truth of God's word, then he cannot tell us why nature functions in a uniform fashion. Why is it that the law of gravity will continue to work? Why is it that things will continue to function in the future the way they have in the past? And if, if things do not function in a uniform way, then we couldn't know anything. The fact of the matter is, think about that. We, we learn things based upon past experiences. You know, if I, you know, punch myself in the head, oh, that hurts. How do I know it's going to hurt if I do it again in five minutes? Well, I've learned from my past experience, right, that, I, that it hurts to punch yourself in the head. But the issue is, how do we know that nature will be, be uniform in the future? Well, the unbelieving worldview cannot give a reason for that. Okay, so if you don't have a reason to believe in uniformity of nature, then you have really no reason to believe or to believe in anything or to know anything because things could always be changing. The next time you punch yourself in the head, hey, it might be the best experience in the world. And then the time after that, maybe something totally different, right? If there's no uniformity in nature. But everybody believes that nature is uniform, but unbelievers can't give you a reason why. Those who do not presuppose the Bible cannot give you a reason why. See, from a Christian worldview, of course, we do presuppose the Bible. If you start there, you can make sense of why nature is uniform. All these scripture texts about God putting uniformity in nature. I did a video on this, the preconditions of intelligibility recently, how the Bible accounts for why knowledge is possible. Um, that is vitally important. See, what I'm, what I'm showing the unbeliever is you can't make sense out of your observations of the natural world at all. And if your worldview are true, you couldn't know anything. But the fact that you do experience things and make you know, right observations about things and um, do know things shows that the Christian worldview is true even though you deny it. The Christian worldview can make sense out of the world. Your worldview can't. See, the unbelieving worldview, if true, would make knowledge impossible. But since knowledge is possible, the only reason, the Christian worldview can make sense of why knowledge is possible. Which points to the fact that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. If you want to have, a, um, have reasons to believe things, you have to start with, with the Christian worldview. You have to start with the Christian worldview. Um, if you don't start with the Christian worldview, all of your human experience would be is unintelligible 
Um, but because people are, in fact, living in God's world, objectively it's true that people are made by God living in His world. Um, whether they acknowledge it or not, um, they are able to function in this world because the Christian worldview is true. So the funny, the funny thing about the transcendental argument is that if you argue in favor of God, it proves um, the Christian worldview. And if you argue against God, it also proves the Christian worldview. Because the unbeliever must borrow the laws of logic, which are accounted for only in the Christian worldview, in order to generate his argument against the Christian worldview. That's why when Bonson, when Greg Bonson debated atheist Gordon Stein, he said, in your naturalistic, materialistic worldview, you cannot make sense or account for laws of logic. They don't make sense in a naturalistic worldview. You can't make sense of any abstract um, entity. So he says to Stein, he says, because your world, and paraphrasing here, because your worldview cannot account for laws of logic, and since debate requires laws of logic, you showing up to this debate shows that you've already lost. You showing up to this debate shows that you've lost because your worldview can't account for laws of logic. The engaging in debate gener uh, uh, engaging in debate shows that the Christian worldview is true because the Christian worldview can account for laws of logic. The naturalistic, materialistic worldview cannot. So whatever you argue, ultimately you have to borrow from the Christian worldview showing that the Christian worldview is the worldview that makes, the, uh, makes our human experience in the world intelligible, makes it understandable. We can make sense of the world if we go to Scripture. If you don't, you can't make rational sense of the world. So the cosmological argument, I'm going back here to wrap it up, the cosmological argument fails on a number of fronts, but um, at the foundation, what the issues are is that evidentialists who would deploy the cosmological argument here are assuming that you don't have to start with God in order to make sense of the world, that the unbeliever can make sense of the world in his own worldview and that he has a right to engage in those things. I think that's a bad idea. Um, the unbeliever has no ability in his on, on the grounds of his own worldview, has no ability to make sense out of anything at all. Now, yes, the unbeliever can reason. Why? Because the Christian worldview is actually true. Even though the unbeliever doesn't believe it's true, he's, he's wrong. And what sh it shows that he is wrong because he engages in reasoning. And only the Christian worldview can make sense of reasoning, make sense of the laws of logic. This is why Romans 1 says that everybody knows God, but they suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. So when the unbeliever argues against God, Ultimately, though, he's showing, he is showing that he knows God because only lo laws of logic can only be accounted for from God. They come from God and from the Christian worldview. So even when the unbeliever argues against the Christian worldview, he still is unconsciously, in a sense, presupposing the Christian worldview, which is the stunning thing about the transcendental argument, is that making any arguments whatsoever demonstrates the truth of the Christian worldview. So... Again, I'm doing these apologetic videos. Um, some of this stuff, you know, may be difficult to understand if you're not already a little bit versed in presuppositionalism. Maybe a good idea to go back. Uh, if you're new to this, I'd go back to a video I did called A Critique of a Critique of Presuppositional Apologetics, I think it's called, from a while ago. 
And then I've been, in the last few weeks, been doing um, podcasts on various presuppositional issues. Um, I would go and look up Greg Bonson versus Gordon Stein. I would see this apologetic method in practice. Greg Bonson was an excellent presuppositional apologist. Also look up Greg Bonson versus um, Edward Tabash, T-A-B-A-S-H. And that's a good example as well. Um, check out some books. There's Always Ready by Greg Bonson. There's always, also Ultimate Proof of Creation by Jason Lyle. Those are good introductions to this. If you have any questions or um, something doesn't make sense to you, feel free to reach out to me. Go into fullarmorministries.org. Um, fullarmorministries.org. Armor spelled A-R-M-O-U-R. Like the name of this podcast, Full Armor Radio. It's fullarmorministries.org. You can go to the contact page and uh, shoot me an email there. So that will end this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for watching. I hope this was helpful to you. I hope that you will start employing a presuppositional transcendental argument and leave this cosmological argument behind. So thank you for listening or watching, and God bless you.